Our Father, we give you praise that in our fellowship, in our relationships with one another, we know that living within us is the same Spirit of God who creates a, a fellowship beyond that of human, earthly fellowship, but actually an eternal fellowship, an eternal fellowship that will continue beyond this time. And Father, we look forward to that. We thank you that we do not have to look forward in this life to going off as one recently wrote in a, in a, work, in a book uh, to a dark chasm, to an unknown void. But Lord, that we go forth into the joy and the presence of God. We're so grateful for that knowledge and for that hope. Lord, bless us today. Guide us according to your divine plan. We ask that you will guide us in our study we ask that you will keep our eyes focused on you through, through this day and the days ahead for as long as you leave us here on this planet, that we will serve you and be reflectors of the glory of Christ uh, to our society and to all those that are near to us. Lord, bless this day, and I pray that your Spirit will be here to teach us throughout this hour in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to read to you this morning from... Psalm 105, Psalm 105, reading at verse 8, Psalm 105, reading at verse 8, he has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When there were only a few men in number, very few and strangers in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Today is kind of a transition between uh, our completion of the book of Joshua and moving into the events which follow the death of Joshua, which are recorded in what is known as the book of Judges. I I'd like to kind of overview what we have looked at in bringing Israel to this place. I've titled this, The Significance of Obedience and Faith in the Acquisition of Canaan. Noah had four well, Noah had three sons, and one of his sons was Ham. Ham had four sons. One of those four sons was named Canaan. In Genesis chapter 10, we discover that Canaan became the progenitor of clans that became known as the Canaanites and as the Phoenicians. Now, what is interesting is that the Canaanite clans that lived specifically in what we know as Canaan were largely divided and isolated. And that's why Israel, partly why Israel was able to conquer them. They went by their different ite names, you remember, Hivite and, and, and so forth. And they had their own kings and they had their own little principalities and they had their own gods. Well, their gods were pretty much the same, but the Phoenicians were also Canaanites. But they lived up in what is today Lebanon. And they became more united and would establish a great maritime empire. And this maritime empire would have influence for hundreds of years. 
Phoenician ships would rival Greek ships in Mediterranean trade. In fact, it was through the trade contacts that the Greeks had with these Eastern Mediterranean people known as the Phoenicians. And by the way, the word Phoenician comes from the Greek meaning red men because they sold a purple dye, which was noted throughout the Mediterranean as the trademark of these people. It was through this contact that the Greeks picked up the Phoenician Canaanite script. And that Phoenician Canaanite script became foundational to the development of the Greek alphabet. And the Greek alphabet is, of course, foundational to our modern Western alphabet. So our alphabet, which we use, has its ultimate roots back with the Canaanites, as strange as that might seem. The Canaanites and the Phoenicians were particularly vile in their religious practices, and we've noted that a little bit. The principal term used for uh, their male deity was Baal. Word Baal means Lord, and, and he came in many permutations. Uh, then there was Ashtara, who was the female counterpart. They were both fertility deities. And in the worship of these fertility deities, there was much licentiousness and even occasionally human sacrifice. Now the Phoenicians would go on to carry their religion across the Mediterranean to North Africa and even over to southern Spain. And they would create a great empire that would rival the Roman Empire. But it would be destroyed by that very Roman Empire in the second century BC. In fact, in my classes at the college, I emphasize the fact that there was a great battle in history. Uh, many people get, uh, when they study history, they get tired of talking about wars. But you know, history is made up of a lot of wars, you may have noticed. You may have noticed right now how many wars are going on or about to go on, serious wars. And uh, it is often through war that history is dramatically changed. And there was a great battle fought in North Africa in 202 BC known as the Battle of Zama, in which the Romans defeated the Carthaginians, which was the name given to the local Phoenicians in North Africa. And uh, as a result of that, the, the Baal worship did not become the dominant worship of the Mediterranean world. <laughs> the various Roman deities did. But, you know, what difference does that make? Well, maybe not a lot. But the worship of the god Baal in his various varieties was more heinous than even the worship of the Roman gods for the most part. The Canaanites, however, suffered destruction in Canaan on nearly a millennium before the Phoenicians were destroyed. And the reason for that, are there's at least two reasons for that. One was, they were living in the land that God had said, I'm going to give to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to his descendants. So they were in a bad place. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it wouldn't have been bad for them had they been a people open to God. Now, the Phoenicians lasted much longer, partly because some of them were living outside the area that had been granted to Israel, and the other reason is those that were living inside the area that had been granted to Israel were not conquered by Israel because Israel didn't capture all the territory that God had said should be their land, if you remember. We talked about that. Uh, what is southern Lebanon should have been part of ancient Israel, but they never conquered it. And so the Phoenicians who lived there were untouched. And so they would go on to become uh, a, great, a great empire. Now, really the question behind all of this is, I think, of all the possible places in the Near East, why in the world did God choose Canaan to be the land of promise? 
For those of you who have been to Israel, you say, why in the world did God choose this place to be the promised land? It doesn't look very promising when you travel across it today. Much of it is barren. It's very rocky. In the summertime, it's very hot. And you think, this is the promised land? <laughs> but of course, it wasn't in as bad a condition then as it is now. God, of course, knows all the reasons why he chose this particular region. But certainly, one of the most important reasons that I think we can identify is that Canaan was and Palestine would be and Israel even today is a crossroads of the world. Peoples who travel from Asia Minor to Egypt or from Egypt to Mesopotamia, there was a triangular movement of people from these three great centers of civilization. Uh, the oldest center of civilization in the world is Mesopotamia. The second oldest center of civilization is Egypt. Asia Minor is not terribly far behind. These three great centers of civilization all met together at Canaan. And the major trade routes all pass through Canaan. Hence, people from all over the densely populated Eastern Mediterranean world would be exposed to the truth of God by his people living in the land of Canaan. By giving the land of Canaan to Israel, God was, of course, fulfilling a promise that he had made long ago. Let me go back and remind us of that promise. It's found in the 12th chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. <laughs> you have to remember that when Abraham received that promise, he was childless and his wife was barren. And of course, to, to accept that, even coming from God, you have to have a great deal of faith. This promise had been made by God to Abraham at least 700 years before it became a reality. Now, think about 700 years. This is 1999. You back up 700 years, and that's 1299. Do you know what happened in 1299? Probably not. Uh, you know, 1299 was the middle of the Middle Ages, <laughs> and people were still running around in shining armor and clanging each other off their horses like they did recently here in some medieval fair they had, you know. I mean, it was called the age of faith, but the amount of faith that really existed at that time was very infinitesimal. infinitesimal. So it was a long time between the time that God, Abraham received that promise and God actually fulfilled that promise. Now, God called Abram out of Ur in Mesopotamia to go up to Canaan. Now, Ur of Mesopotamia was one of the greatest of the ancient cities. Mesopotamia uh, was just coming to the end of the great era of Sumer, which is the earliest civilization of which we have any record. And Ur was one of the great cities. So he was coming from, as if it were today, he was coming from Paris, you might say. And, and he was going to some hick country that he knew nothing about, in, in effect. No. 
And on his way from Ur, following the Fertile Crescent, he got hung up at a place called Haran. Now, Haran is up in what is today Syria today, and it was a great trade center. And, and there he stayed until his father Terah died. And then he, he was released to go on further in search of the promised land. And so he launched out looking for a land about which he had heard, but about which he knew nothing. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now think in terms of Abraham. He came from Ur of the Chaldees, Ur in Mesopotamia, Ur of Sumer, a great, set, a great city. In fact, at the time he came out, was right about the time that Ur was probably coming to the close of its greatest era of glory. It controlled an empire. And he went to Haran. And Haran was a great metropolitan center also, great caravan city. And from there now, he moves south into what, by comparison, had to be viewed as a poor land. Not a land of, of great industry or great trade, but a land mostly of agriculture and small cities. But as the writer of the Hebrews implies, Abraham had come to Canaan not in search of earthly wealth and glory, but in obedience to God, who had promised him something greater, a heavenly glory. Obviously, um, therefore, Abraham the nomad is really what he became, of course, became a great example to us because how many times does God call us to follow him as it were, into the dark, to follow him somewhere we don't know where we're going or why we're going there. I don't mean necessarily physically picking us up and moving us to New Jersey of all the places in the world to go to, but, but you know, in, in, our, in our spiritual walk, in our job life, in, in our family life, who, who knows, all different areas in which we can walk. And of course, we need to, as Abraham did, follow God obediently, knowing that God knows where we're going, even if we don't, and he knows why we're going there. And that whatever the case is, we know ultimately it will lead to the heavenly promised land. We all know that's where we're all headed for, ultimately, right? Even though we may not know the path right now about how we're getting there. As we read in Hebrews 13, 14, for there... For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come, which is to come. Of course, the Hebrew author is referring to the city which Paul, um, John would describe in the book of Revelation. Now, the only possession that Abraham had in Canaan was known as the field of Ephron, in which was the cave of Machpelah. And that is where he buried his wife, Sarah. And it is where his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him. Now, Isaac and Rebekah lived in Canaan. And if you remember in Genesis, they lived primarily at Hebron and then in the Negev, 
to the south at Beersheba and other locations. But like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah were always sojourners in the land. They too were nomads. They had really no place to call their own except what would become their grave. They would be buried in the cave of Machpelah also. But when they, were, when they died and when they were gone, the promised land still remained in the hands of the Canaanite. Remember now, Abraham had been promised this land. He lived his whole life in Canaan, you know, the, the years after he was 75, without ever knowing that to be a reality. Isaac, the inheritor, never knows it to be a reality. In fact, he's chased from pillar to post by people who wanted the wells that he dug. And being a man of peace, he said, okay, you have them, I'll dig another one. And, and, and then as we come to Jacob, we find the same to be true. Jacob was in search of a wife who was not a Canaanite. Nor to find such a wife, he went back to Padanaram in Syria, where the descendants of Abraham's brother Nahor were living. And there, of course, he found a wife. In fact, of course, he found several of them. In Paden Aram, Jacob became a wealthy and prosperous man. As you remember, his family multiplied. Nearly all of his sons, you know, virtually his whole family was born there. And he, his, his great herds were gathered there. And here he was, a, a great sheik, as it were. But in Genesis 31.3, we read these words. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Return, and I will be with you. Now, of course, he needed a little encouraging to actually do it, and so the problems with Laban were, were generated, his uh, father-in-law. Obviously, God was not primarily concerned with the wealth, the comfort, and the success of Jacob. What he was concerned about was Jacob's obedience in fulfilling God's plan. God's plan was not for Jacob to live in Paden Aram. His plan was for Jacob to live in Canaan. Now, neither Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob could see the end result of the plan that God had for his people in the land of Canaan. Again, in Hebrews chapter 11, at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. They had eyes of faith, you see, that God would fulfill his promise. And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, that is, that they are strangers and exiles, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return, namely, of course, Mesopotamia. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We hear a great deal about the concept, well, maybe not a great deal, but occasionally, about the idea of someone being so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. But we in practical America can reverse that to the point that is worse. We're so earthly minded that we're of no heavenly good. We, we don't have a view of the fact that we're headed for heaven, a greater place. That is our home. We are aliens here. 
Sometimes we feel more alienated than other times, I suppose. It's becoming more alien uh, by the day here in America, you may have noticed. The conquest of Canaan occurred between four and five hundred years after the death of Jacob. Even though these three great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, never possessed any more than the field of Ephron in the south and a piece of land up in Shechem in the north. That was it. That was how much they possessed of the promised land. In obedience, they settled in Canaan and lived there often as a nomad. I mean, as a nomad. And that was part of God's crucial plan. How can that be? We, do, we don't understand. Why did they have to live there in order for God's plan to be fulfilled? in order for this to be a part of establishing of the promised land. What I think this teaches us, in part at least, is that our obedience in serving God is vital, even if we never see the result of that obedience. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never saw Canaan as the promised land. It would be to their generation, descendants generations ahead in time. There are times when you and I are called to do things that we don't see the result. We wonder, why did we do this, God? Why did we feel that you led us to do this? It, it hasn't changed anything. We live in a society that wants to see immediate results for any effort put forth, right? Instant gratification society. But any student of Scripture quickly discovers that God does not operate on that basis. He has an eternal perspective on human history, and that is what he wants us to gain. Let me read a brief passage from 1 Corinthians, where in, in a roundabout way, Paul is saying this. Paul is, of course, dealing with a rather reprobate church here, and he's talking about them being fleshly, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, When one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? In other words, you're operating in the flesh and not in the spirit. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunities to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So this passage, I think, is telling us, in part related to what we're discussing here. First of all, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were one together with Joshua and all those that followed, not only because there is a blood descent, but they were one in obedience to building God's work. You and I can't understand, don't necessarily see any logical reason why Abraham had to go to Canaan and knock around as a nomad there, and why Isaac and Jacob did the same, and they never received the land. They all died there. Oh, they're buried there, but, you know, beyond that. It would be not until the days of Joshua that the land would actually be acquired. So what was the point of all of this? Point is, we're all one in God. And God has this great 
immense plan that's in motion. And he has a place for every one of us in this plan. And you and I do not have to see the fruit or the end result of that plan to know that we have an important role to play in that plan. You probably have heard many stories, as I have, of missionaries who labored all their lives amongst a resistant people group with little or no result. Little or no apparent result. And they died and went on. And some would say, why did they go there? It wasn't worth it. They gave their whole life, 50 years of their lives, for what? And then the next generation of missionary walks in, does a little watering, and poof! You know, a church almost grows overnight because God gave the increase. So, so who are we? to say someone has wasted his or her effort doing this thing that they believe to service the Lord because there's no obvious fruit from it. Because God in His time will bring fruit. God wastes no one and nothing. No life is ever wasted in His service. Whatever the world says about it and whatever appears even to us to be true. Not only did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not experience Canaan as the promised land for themselves personally. But in the days following Jacob, the people became enslaved in Egypt. <laughs> and that could have easily been seen as a negation of the promise. Well, God's promise is gone now. The people are enslaved in Egypt. This puny little tribe of people, this little clan of individuals, 70 strong as they went into, their, into Egypt, are enslaved in the mightiest nation of the world at that time. A nation whose wealth was known far and wide. How could this puny little group ever expect to break free from the hold of this mighty nation? Well, we've read how that happened. You and I have witnessed in the scripture how God crushed Egypt with ten great plagues. How he parted the Red Sea so they could walk, Israel could walk across and then drown the army of the Egyptians in it. And then he carried him over to this God-forsaken mountain, who became, which became a God-blessed mountain in, in, in uh, southern Sinai uh, called Mount Sinai, Sinai, or the mountain of Moses, Jebel Musa, and dramatically appeared before his people and gave them the word of God. Could anybody dream up a story like that? I don't think so. It's only in the mind of God that such marvelous things could happen. And then, of course, faithful Moses brought Israel through 40 years of wandering in that wilderness. And as I mentioned to you before, if you've ever seen the Sinai, it isn't a Mojave Desert. It's not one of these friendly places. It's very hostile. And brought them through and brought them to the brink of the Promised Land. And equally fa uh, faithful Joshua carried them in and completed the conquest. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to rank God's people and say, aha, well, Moses was greater than Joshua. Well, in, in Scripture, the Scripture talks about Moses being a great man and, and, and it implies that there was even no greater prophet than Moses. But in God's eyes, Joshua was a great man too. Even though his period of glory was shorter, he was faithful in doing what God called him to do. And, and he was very, very important cog in God's whole work that he was doing. So we need to think, hold Joshua in high esteem also. Now, the real problem with all of this comes when it comes to the point of the actual occupation of Canaan. 
In order to acquire the promised land, Israel had to wipe out its Canaanite inhabitants. In our day, what would we call that? Genocide. We would call that genocide. And we just bombed the daylights out of a dinky little country over there because of the fact that there was genocide occurring against one of the people groups within it. So how do you think our world today would view this situation? Israel walking in and annihilating the population of Canaan. I think the UN or the NATO or somebody, you know, would react to that in a, in a negative way. G. Campbell Morgan, in his summary concerning the book of Joshua, gives us the divine perspective, and that's the perspective we need to have. God is perpetually at war with sin. That is the whole explanation of the extermination of the Canaanites. It was surgery, not murder. The excision of the cancer that the healthy part might remain. The land had not been without definite teaching and warning. Melchizedek had lived there. Abraham had lived there. Isaac and Jacob had lived there. Men of the promise, men of the word, men of faith. Solemn warning had been given in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, how do you explain that? Fire rains out of heaven because of the vileness of these cities. And the other people look at that and say, oh, well, you know, no big deal. They were blind to the light, deaf to the voice. These people persisted in sin until they had become absolutely immoral and atrociously cruel. Today, there are many who have a big problem with this. Many who belong to various denominations, particularly the mainline and more modernist denominations, there are many who do not believe that the God of Joshua is the God of the New Testament. Now, if you go back in history, you discover that there have been cults, I guess we would have to say, that have developed in the history of the church upon which this was a major pivotal point, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two separate gods, that the God of the Old Testament is the God of darkness and of evil, and the God of the New Testament is the God of light and good. This is a kind of a Manichaean, a, a, a dualistic approach that is very close to Zoroastrianism. Many modernists hold virtually the same view. The only way they get, they break from this is to decide that the story of Joshua is either not true or was not what God ordained to happen. Therefore, the book of Joshua is not really a part of the word of God. The story of the Israelite conquest of Canaan has become a major stumbling block to many modernist theologians. Of course, for many of them, it's kind of good to throw out the book of Joshua because it has some unexplainable miracles in there like how the sun stood still for a full day, you know, how, how do you explain that? You know, the walls of a city all fell down and, and just because somebody walked around it seven times, um, you know, a little hard to explain. But if you throw Joshua out or, or believe it just to be a human invented book and not divinely inspired, then you don't have those problems anymore. You've heard of the baby and the, the bath water kind of syndrome, yeah? <laughs> That's why they the book of Revelation too, because the God of the Old Testament tends to show up there again. <laughs> We're kind of sandwiched in there, aren't we? <laughs> the question, of course, that they ask is, is not an unreasonable question. And it's a question you probably have heard many times. How could a God of love order the massacre of a whole nation of people? Today we hear 
how could a God of love allow an aircraft with 300 people to crash into a mountain? Or how could a God of love allow an earthquake to, to kill 5,000 people in downtown Mexico? You know, how could a God of love do this? Isn't there good in everyone? Such people, of course, have lost all perspective upon what faith and holiness are about. Faith and holiness are rooted in the Scripture. As soon as the Scripture is no longer viewed as divinely inspired from Genesis 1 to, Gen to, to Revelation 22, then suddenly you have a religion that is man-invented, man-manipulated, man-cut-up you know, uh, to, to fit whatever someone wishes or desires. And, and that is a big problem in a society of people who view themselves as highly educated and, and very knowledgeable. You probably have noticed, this is not meant to, to insult anyone in this room, because to me you're all beautiful. But what the world calls beautiful, the really super beautiful, usually end up in some of the worst possible situations and seem to be the farthest possible from God. Their beauty, their intelligence, their wealth, or whatever it is, tends to separate them from God because they have all the acclaim and all the wealth and all that they could want in this life, theoretically, until they commit suicide, because it wasn't all that great. It, it condemns them. Condemns them because they have no concept of what faith and holiness are all about. Again, the words of G. Campbell Morgan, faith is the acceptance of God's holy standards. Faith is abandonment to the government of God's will. Faith is achievement in the strength of God's might. God is a man of war, man with a capital M, of course, smiting sin, refusing to make truce with it, accepting no white flag of surrender offered to him except that of abandonment of sin, all because he loves us. God makes no truce. Everything will be settled on his terms or else. Now, we, we live in this day and the UN is trying to work through this and NATO is trying to work through this because Russia doesn't want to do what the US wants to do. And sometimes I almost am sympathetic with Russia knowing who's leading our country. And, you know, you look at this whole thing and compromise is the name of it everywhere. But with God, there is no compromise. You walk his way or not. Choose this day whom you will serve. It's for me and my house will serve the Lord. Why do you try to walk the fence, teetering back and forth? If Baal is God, serve him. But if Jehovah is God, serve him. As we move into the book of Judges, it is very important that we more and more learn how to view events from God's perspective. And we can only get that perspective by being in this book a great deal. Really studying the Bible. You know, a verse a day keeps the devil away just doesn't cut it. We, we can't really understand God's perspective if we don't know who God is. There's no way to know God except through his book. Oh, yes, we can have a general idea about God because he says he causes the rain to fall in the just and the unjust alike. And in Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 1, we're told that in, in all that is created, God can be seen. But what can you know about God from what he has created? You can know certain things, but you can't really know his personality. 
You can't really know um, his stand on holiness or what even holiness is. We can only know it from a study of the book that he has given to us. He has an eternal and perfect plan for all of his people. And you and I have no right to judge that plan from human standards. And we do it all the time. I'm guilty of it. I say, God, why did you do that? It doesn't seem like a very good thing to do. You know, from my perspective, it doesn't. Saul of Tarsus had decided he knew what God's will was, and he went about trying to imprison and kill Christians. Until one day on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with the very person he was persecuting. And Jesus said to him in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, Paul reported this, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> we do that all the time, don't we? Because we do not have God's perspective, we are kicking against the sharp points that are prodding us along. God is saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. And we're saying, Lord, it doesn't look like the way. I think that's the way. He keeps jabbing us. And, you know, we, we have to come to the place where we say, yes, Lord, that's the way. I'm walking in it. Quit sticking me. You know, and, and it's coming to God's perspective and understanding God's purpose. I think it boils down to Morgan's words. Faith is the acceptance of God's standard of holiness. Not trying to impose our perceived standard of holiness on God, but accepting His standard. Joshua and Israel had to come to that place. And because they came to that place, God delivered Canaan into their hands. And they had the victory. They gained the promised land. So now what we're going to be doing beginning next Sunday is looking at what it was like to live in the promised land. And how did Israel relate to God and to each other and to the surrounding peoples in the years before God raised up the great prophet Samuel and ultimately allowed Israel to establish the kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon? What were those intervening years like? And that's what the book of Judges and, and the little story of Ruth, that's what those are about. And so that will be what we will focus on in the months ahead.